Welcome everyone, my name is Tim Harris, pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church, delighted to welcome you to worship. Open your Bibles, please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is another message in the series Ecclesia, the word Ecclesia, as Brother David said this morning earlier in our service, it means assembly, but literally in the Greek it means called out ones called out ones. Ecclesia is the word in the New Testament for church, and we're talking about the church. We've been talking about the church as the people called out by God, transformed through Christ, and possessed by the Holy Spirit to praise and glorify him forever. The church is the people. It is the people called out by God transformed by Christ and possessed by the Holy Spirit. God's great big plan, as we've said, is to bring everything into perfect harmony through Christ. Everything into perfect harmony through Christ. And that's what he's doing through the church. And if he's doing it through the church, then listen to me. He's doing it through you and me. This is how it happens. The church is people. If God is doing this great plan through the church then it must be unfolding day by day in my life and your life. It's my life called out by God. Your life and mine being transformed through Christ and possessed by the Holy Spirit. It's happening in our lives. But sometimes it doesn't. And that's what we need to talk about this morning. Sometimes in my life or or your life, it's almost like the unthinkable happens. The book of Romans says that I have died to sin, and therefore sin is not going to control the way I live. That's what the scripture says. But indeed, you and I have probably been around long enough, and we've seen enough of the world and seen enough of the church to recognize that sometimes church people do go back to a life of sin. Sometimes a person who says that once they died to sin, they go back and they do begin to allow sin to control their lives. Is there anything to be done about that? You know, and I know, that that out in the community, in the world, one of the biggest criticisms of the church is that the church is full of hypocrites. And too often, they're exactly right. We are hypocritical. We do not live the life that we proclaim. We do not live out the gospel that we preach. Is there anything to do about that? Honestly, there is. Honestly, Scripture is very, very clear what to do when a member of the church turns back to sin. And I want us to look at it this morning. And to be real honest, I'm a little bit concerned about preaching this because I know that some of you are are, are not going to listen well to me, but you're going to walk out and quote me anyway. So I want you to listen to me. I want you to listen today. Listen to the very end of this sermon. Some of you are going to be worried and concerned about what I'm about to preach. Some of you are going to be afraid that this is going to be some change at Woodburn Baptist Church. And it's not. It's not. So let's look together. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Remember, Corinthians is a letter that Paul is writing to a real live church, the church at Corinth. And this is one messed up church. We've talked about it previously. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul zeroes in on a particular instance in the church that reveals how very far the whole church has strayed and their important principles for us today. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, let's talk about church discipline. Church discipline. Paul speaking here, he says this. I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you, something that even pagans don't do. I'm told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. You're so proud of yourselves. 
But you should be mourning in sorrow and shame. And you should remove this man from your fellowship. Even though I am not with you in person, I am with you in the spirit. And as though I were there, I have already passed judgment on this man in the name of the Lord Jesus. You must call a meeting of the church. I will be present with you in spirit, and so will the power of our Lord Jesus. Then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed, and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. Your boasting about this is terrible. Don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. Then you will be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you already are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So let us celebrate the festival, not with the old bread of wickedness and evil, but with the new bread of sincerity and truth. When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or or greedy or cheat people or worship idols. You'd have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant that you were not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, yet indulges in sexual sin, or is greedy, or worship idols, or is abusive, or is a drunkard, or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, but as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. Message is entitled, Cutting Your Own Switch. Now now that's a phrase that probably only makes any kind of sense to people of, of a certain generation and above. How many of you have some idea of what cutting your own switch probably refers to? There you go, all the senior citizens in the, in the, in the congregation. Cutting your own switch. Well, what am I referring to? What is cutting your own switch? It probably goes back to a day when, when most parents physically disciplined their children, and I'm not about to debate that with you, but in the old days, physical discipline, spanking, whipping, was very, very common. How many of you grew up being spanked or, or, or whipped? Uh, yeah, you didn't get enough of them, I can tell you that, that much. You, you probably didn't, didn't get enough of them. I, I do understand, and I'm not, I'm not going to be insensitive to some of you who really were abused, and your, your, your mom or dad or someone in your life abused you physically, and I'm not talking about that. God bless you. I'm not talking about physical abuse, but there is a kind of discipline that loving parents can exercise, and many of you grew up being physically disciplined. And in the old days, I, I don't know what it was about your daddies, but, but they had this idea that physical discipline was something that, that was performed best with a switch cut off a tree. A switch cut off a tree. What kind of tree was it? Typically some sort of fruit tree. I've heard a lot of you say it was a peach limb, a peach switch, or, or maybe something off a, a pear tree. But at any rate, when it was time to get discipline, when it was time to get a spanking, you were going to get it with a switch off a tree. But here's the thing, your daddy would ask you to go cut your own switch. What's up with that? Why would he make you go cut your own switch? 
Was your daddy lazy? No, no, no. There is a purpose behind that. Why would you have to cut your own switch? Because the moment your daddy says, I want you to go, go cut a switch off the peach tree and bring it back to me, you know what's going to happen. You know what he's going to do with that switch. So what do you think? What goes through your mind? I'm going to go to that tree and I'm going to cut the smallest switch on the tree. And that's what you did. How long had you known your daddy? You go cut the smallest switch off the tree and you bring back this little bitty twig. And what did your daddy do? He whipped you with it. And sent you back. Yeah. He whipped you with the small one and then sent you back to cut a bigger one. In other words, you got it with the little switch. And then you had to go back and cut a bigger switch. You would come back. You would actually get it twice that day. You thought you were outsmarting the old man, didn't you? But you would get it twice. This whole idea of cutting your own switch, was there wisdom in that? Absolutely. I think there was wisdom in that because I think there's something very, very important about participating in your own discipline. Something very, very fundamental. And actually, that was the most important lesson your daddy was trying to teach you that you should participate in your own discipline. Now, we're about to talk about church discipline, but listen to me this fundamental principle the best discipline is always self discipline. The best discipline is always self-discipline. The reason that godly parents discipline their children, the reason your father, if he were a godly man, and I assume he loved you, the reason that at a certain time in your life he sometimes whipped you with the switch off the peach tree is that there would be a moment in your life when nobody had to beat you with the switch off a peach tree. Do you understand? The, the reason your parents disciplined you is so that you would grow and become the kind of person that nobody else for the rest of your life has to discipline. The idea is that you learn to discipline yourself, to control yourself. And that's very much a part of the spiritual life. Self-control, self-discipline is one of the fruits of the Spirit. So the best kind of discipline is self-discipline. The most important way for you to grow in Christ and to live the life of holiness that Christ has for you is that you learn to discipline yourself. You learn to say no to your own flesh. You, you learn to say no to your temptations and your fleshly desires. You learn to say no to sin and yes to the Lord. Every single day of your life, every moment that you live, the best discipline is self-discipline. At Woodburn Baptist Church, I, I encourage you, I implore you to be self-disciplined. Nobody else should ever have to discipline you, your grown-ups. Nobody else should ever have to call you in and make you feel like a child. That should never happen to you. The best discipline is self-discipline. And as the body of Christ, there's actually a lot that we try to do all of the time so that we can be the people that God has called us out to be. So that we can live as people whose lives have been transformed by Christ. Whose hearts are possessed by the Holy Spirit. There's certain things that we do and we do them all of the time in order for us to become the holy people that Christ wants us to be. For example, what we do every single Sunday and Sunday night and, and Wednesday night, we teach. We teach and we teach biblical principles. We always do our very best as Sunday school teachers and deacons and pastors and everyone else involved in the ministries of this church. We're always teaching, always preaching. 
And every time we teach and preach, we open the Bible because the Bible is the only thing we have to preach. It's the only content that I will ever have for a sermon. God help me. It's Scripture. Scripture is what we preach. And so we teach and we preach biblical morality and biblical principles of how we're supposed to live. And we teach and we preach this all of the time. You're not going to hear the message that we preach here in the world. You're not going to hear it on television. You're not going to hear it anywhere else except where people love God's word and open God's word and make it the foundation of their lives. One of the first things we do as a church, we teach and we preach biblical principles of living. And these principles are, are the ones we try to live our lives by. We teach and we preach. The second thing that we do as a body of Christ is honestly we sort of create a, a, a counterculture, a, a counterculture, almost like a great big support group for one another. Because honestly, if we live by Scripture, if we live the life that Christ wants us to live, when we go out into the world, it's going to be difficult. No one else in the world is trying to live according to Christian standards. The world doesn't get it, they don't appreciate it, and they don't desire it. And so it's hard for us to go out there, to go to school every single day, to go to work every single day, and live as Christians in a world that does not know Christ. When we come together as a church, it's like a counterculture. Suddenly I can come back with people who are normal. Suddenly I can come back with people who are living in harmony with Christ and with one another. We're trying to live as we were supposed to live. And I don't have a lot of support with that in the world. I don't get support with that anywhere else. But at the church, in the body of Christ... We need to have that kind of counterculture. It's a place where we can come and we can breathe and we can know that we are with like-minded people who love the Bible and love the Lord and are committed to him. The church is a, is a counterculture. It's a fellowship. It's support. This is where we come to be recharged. We go back out into the world to live for him. It's something important we do for one another. Another thing we do for each other in this life of, of holiness, this life of becoming more like Christ, is that we practice very simple, very simple disciplines in Scripture of confession and repentance. The fact is, I still sin. I've died to sin, as Romans says. I've died to sin, and I no longer want sin to control the way I live, but, but there's still sin in me, and God help me, I struggle with that. Now, in Jesus' name, I struggle victoriously. I struggle, but I still walk toward the light of his face, and God keeps my feet on his path, and I praise God for that. But I still stumble, and so do you. Woodburn Baptist Church, we're still sinners. We're Christians. We're transformed, but there's still something of the old person that still follows us. And we mess up. We sin. And Scripture knows that we will sin. And that's why the scripture says in the body of Christ, you confess your sins to one another. We confess our sins. I don't try to hide my sin from you. I just honestly, I come in and I own it. I admit it. Now, I may not admit it to all of you at once. I don't know if that would be wise. 
But the scripture says in the body of Christ there should be relationships of, of honesty and accountability. You should have somebody that you should go to to say, my goodness, will you pray for me? I, I'm really worried about myself. I'm beginning to wander off into trouble. Can, can you please help me? Will you please pray for me? Will, will you listen as I unburden myself? It's called confession. It's a normal part of the way the body of Christ operates. When I sin, when you sin, we confess our sin and we turn away from it. We just turn away from it. I I, I may wander off into sin, but as a Christian, I'm not going to live in it. I I may stumble into it, but but God help me, I'm going to get out of it. And that's why I need you. That's why we need each other. Repentance is that process of coming clean and then making a 180 degree turn and walking back in the way that Christ has. I mean, it's an ordinary part of Christian life. Sin and and confession and repentance. It's just part of the way we get along in the body of Christ. We're going to sin, but we're going to repent. We're going to come back. One more thing, very, very important part about the body of Christ. There are actually two things that we must always possess, two things that we must always nurture as the people of God. The first one is conviction. At Woodburn Baptist Church, as your pastor, I want to be a man with conviction, convictions for the truth. I want to stand for the truth. I want to be very, very committed to what God says and the way Christ leads us. I want us to be a church of conviction. I want us to know the truth and to know what we stand for and to know what's willing to, to, to be fought for and what we're willing to die for. It's called conviction. And we need to be a church of conviction. But we also must be a church of compassion. In other words, a, a church that somehow always has a, a great big heart for those who are struggling and those who are in sin. We must have the love of Christ in our hearts. So listen, we must always have conviction and compassion. These two have to go together. In my life, I've seen churches with a lot of conviction, but almost zero compassion. They love to tell people where their sin was, and they love to tell people that they were going to hell, but they never seemed to care much that the world was going to hell. Honestly, a church that has all conviction and no compassion is a disgrace. But it's the same way for the churches that have nothing but compassion. Churches that absolutely love, and they love, and they get along, and they're so very tolerant, but honestly, the church seems to stand for nothing. No conviction for right and wrong. Never, ever any spiritual principle that seems worth fighting for or drawing a line of division from the world. I'm telling you, a church that has all compassion and no conviction, that church is a disgrace as well. We've got to have both. It's as if here's the the line of conviction and here's a line of compassion and we have to find the balance right down between them. Think of them as ditches on, other, on either side of the road. We have to stay in the right place between because the devil doesn't care which ditch we fall off into. He would just love to see us in a ditch. We have to make sure that we always, always balance conviction for the truth and compassion for sinners, compassion for people. Conviction and compassion, they go together here. They didn't go together at Corinth. Pick your Bible back up. Look with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 
Corinth was a, a very, very wicked place. Corinth in its day was a major city, but it was a seaport, which means there's a lot of sailors. Do you all know sailors? You know what sailors are known for? I'm telling you, Corinth was in many, many ways a very sinful city and famous for its sin. It, it was. The city of Corinth was the, the place where the temple of Aphrodite was. Y'all know about Aphrodite? She was the Greek goddess of sex and love and, and fertility. And what went on at the temple of Aphrodite would curl your hair, baby. I'm telling you, you've never imagined the kind of sin that took place in the city of Corinth. This is a wicked, wicked city. The problem is the church there is a whole lot like the world, a whole lot like the city around it. And, and this is a problem that Paul has to address. Now notice what's going on. In the letter that Paul writes, in the language in which Paul wrote, the first word of this sentence, the first word of this message is everywhere. What Paul says is everywhere it is heard about your sexual sin. That's what he says literally. Everywhere it is heard about your sexual sin, the, the sexual sin among you. Now, now, what is the particular sin he's talking about? What is it? Somebody tell me. It's one man, one man, and what has he done? What's he done? Yeah, he's living with his father's wife, his stepmother. Now, now, honestly, we don't know a lot about this situation. I have several questions that probably shouldn't even come into my mind, but I can't help but asking. I just want to know more about that. But Paul doesn't give us any more than that. The church knows exactly what's going on. The church knows the situation well, and that's part of Paul's point. Everybody knows this situation. Paul's not even in Corinth. Are you listening to me? He's not even there. And somewhere all these miles away, Paul's hearing about it. Everybody is talking about this church, and everybody's talking about the sin in this church. And I don't know exactly what this young man is doing with his stepmother. I really don't need to know. It's just what Paul says here that really puts it into a certain context. He says this, everywhere it's heard the report of sexual immorality going on among you, something that even pagans don't do. And again, I'm not inviting you to try to figure out what they were doing that, that even pagans wouldn't do. But, but this is the, the point here. What this church is tolerating and what this man who's supposed to be a Christian, whatever he's doing, he's doing something that the whole world would say, well, Christians shouldn't do that. You, you get that? Whatever he's doing, even pagans, even in Corinth, I mean, it would be hard to come up with something that you could do sexually to shock people at Corinth, but somehow this boy came up with it with his stepmama. Something that would shock Corinth. It's amazing. Paul says even the world would say you just don't do that. But somehow, even though the world would say you just don't do that, nobody in the church at Corinth is saying you just don't do that. Nobody in this church is saying anything about this sin. Now, I want you to notice something about this chapter because you're thinking, oh my goodness, this is a chapter where they kick a guy out of church. And it is, it is. But notice that honestly, this chapter has one verse about this guy and his sin. It has one verse about this man and whatever he's doing with his stepmama, which is gross. Whatever he's doing, but there's one verse about that. But something like 12 verses 
directed to the church. In Paul's mind, what this guy is doing is despicable and unthinkable, but at the same time, what is equally disgraceful, or perhaps more disgraceful, is the fact that this church doesn't care. What's very, very alarming to Paul is that you have this church that is completely willing to tolerate sin. Not just tolerate it, they seem to celebrate it. Are you getting this? There's something about this church, they're proud of this. They're actually proud of this. You are so proud of yourselves, Paul says in verse 2, but you should be mourning in sorrow and shame, and you should remove this man from your fellowship. You're proud of this. You're proud of this. You know, the day in which we live, we're getting very, very close to this again because tolerance has become a, a secular virtue in our culture. Tolerance. The idea that no matter what anybody does, you're just supposed to smile and accept them and never, ever question the choice that anybody else makes. Tolerance has become a secular virtue in our culture. And for that reason, there are many, many congregations that are coming almost close to what Paul is seeing in the city of Corinth, at the church at Corinth. There's this idea that somehow, because they tolerate this, this man's sin, that this makes them something special. That this makes their church somehow more virtuous, the fact that they have a sinner of this magnitude. And Paul says, you're proud of something that really ought to make you mourn. You should be crying your eyes out about what's happening to your church. A, a, a lot of you know, I, I grew up in Bar Baptist Mission in Franklin as a kid. My grandma used to live right smack dab next door to the church, which was awesome because she had a key to the church. And she kept it underneath the scarf on her dresser. And all of us cousins, we used to, we all went to the same church, and then we would all go to grandma's and we would eat lunch after church. And when all the old people, our parents were asleep somewhere in the living room, we would go into grandma's bedroom and sneak that key out of the scarf, and we would sneak over to church and open the door and go inside. And guess what we would do? Play church. We played church. In church, baby. In church. We played church in church. It was awesome. Oh, my goodness. It was so good. We would get in there. We would play with the lights, and we'd play with the microphones, and, and we'd sit in the pews, and some of us would sing, and sometimes we'd give testimonies. And then my cousin Ted would always preach because he was an awesome preacher, awesome preacher. He would get way up in the pulpit, and he would point at us and go, Sinners! And he would tell us, he would tell all of his cousins that we were going to hell. And you could tell he loved to do it. Sinners! And we would just listen and we would cry sometimes or we'd get saved over and over and over. I mean, honestly, we loved to play church. It was a riot. We played church. Ted was to tell us that we're sinners going to hell and we get saved. And then when all that was over, we turn off the lights, cut off the microphone. Go back to grandma's, put the key back in place, eat little Debbie's for the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> kind of like what a lot of people do every single Sunday. Kind of like what a lot of people do every single Sunday. Brothers and sisters, this is no show. We're not playing here. We know what sin does don't we? We know what Christ has delivered us from, don't we? 
We know what sin will do to a life given over to sin, don't we? Sin is not something we celebrate or tolerate. Are you listening to me? Because we can't tolerate what is intolerable. We're talking about sin. And although every single one of us still has sin that continues to lurk in our hearts, it is something that ruthlessly we as God's people try to root out of our lives. I I do continue to have sin in my life, but God help me. Every single day I'm working to root that sin out of my life. I don't want it. I don't want it to control me. And with God's help, it's not going to control me. I'm fighting against sin. Sin is exactly what I'm leaving. And when I get to church, I don't want to find it. Do you understand? The church has to respond to the sin in its midst, just like we respond to the sin in our own private lives. We root it out uh, immediately and finally and completely. We want to root it out. Paul says, you're, you're proud of this. You're celebrating this. What is wrong with you? You should be crying your eyes out with tears. This should break your heart. We're talking about sin here in the body of Christ. You've got to throw this man out, Paul says. You've got to throw him out. Whoa. Really? I mean, that, that's kind of severe. Couldn't we just make him sit on the back pew? I'm just kidding, people in the back pew, I really am. I'm just kidding. I I mean, isn't there something short of that? I mean, throw him out. Have you ever heard of such a thing? Throw him out of church? Why would you do that? Why would Paul say, throw him out? To punish him? To embarrass him? No. No. Remember, it's conviction and compassion. This man is supposed to be a brother. Why would they do this? Why would they discipline a brother? Why would they put him out of the church? So he can come back. Are you listening? The purpose is to restore him. It's to bring him back. And I don't want you to miss something. It works. Flip over to 2 Corinthians, the next letter Paul writes to the church. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. You just got to know the happy ending of the story here. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. Look at these verses. This is amazing and beautiful. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. I'm not overstating it when I say that the man who caused all the trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me. Most of you opposed him, and that was punishment enough. Now, however, it is time to say the word, forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he might be overcome by discouragement. So I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. That's how it works. That's how it's supposed to work. It's not that the church wants to throw people out just to punish them and embarrass them and somehow make some sort of stand. It's never about that. We love each other. We love each other. And if ever the church were in a situation to have to exercise this kind of discipline, even at that point, the intention is still to restore, to see people's lives made whole, to see what's broken be put back together by the power of Christ. Our intention is always to love and forgive and restore. So let's talk practically for a moment. Would Woodburn Baptist Church ever do something like this? The answer is yes, yes. Woodburn Baptist Church exercises church discipline. We've done it for years. 
We've done it twice this year. I'm telling you, we've done it. We've always done it. We haven't always done it well. We haven't always done it consistently. One of the stories I know from our church's history, it regards Charlene Morris's daddy. God bless Charlene. Her daddy was Virgil Kelly in our church back in the 19-teens, back before 1920. And at some point in there, young Virgil Kelly danced. He busted a move at the stockyard in Woodburn and got kicked out of church for it. He got kicked out of church for dancing at the stockyard in Woodburn. Jimmy White, I know you go to the stockyard a lot. Brother Darrell, keep an eye on him. I don't want Jimmy busting a move. No, I don't understand that. Obviously, at times, the church has had convictions and sometimes forced convictions about things that aren't scriptural. And the Bible never says don't dance. And we won't be voting people out of the church in our day for dancing. You understand? You're not going to be able to take your personal opinions. You can't take just things that you don't like and, and bring them up to the level of, of, of punishable sins. You understand what I'm saying? I, I know some of you don't necessarily like people who, who pierce their tongue or, or whatever or, or tattoo their eyelids. But I'm telling you, just because you don't like it, It doesn't mean that the church has to stand against it because I'm telling you, not everything you don't like is actually sin. And so we have to be very, very careful, and as a church, always careful that that whenever we make a stand against sin, that it's generally something that the Bible gives us a place to stand upon. Because honestly, our, our, our first instinct, our number one prerogative should be grace. Not punishment, not discipline, but but, but Grace. When I think about church discipline, I always go back to the story Jesus told about the wheat and the weeds. Do you remember it? The wheat and the weeds, where there's a man who sows a field with good seed, but, but in the middle of the night, an enemy comes and sows weeds in, tears among the wheat. And so when the, everything starts to come up, there, there are weeds and, and there's good wheat growing in the same field. And the servants say to the master, should we go out and start pulling up all the weeds? And what did the master say? No. No. That's not your place. You don't go pulling up the weeds because you're not very good at at distinguishing weeds from wheat. You will always inevitably start ripping up the the wrong plant. You'll be pulling up good wheat. Lots of times when I've seen churches exercise discipline, this is what I see. That They may manage to pull out the member. They may manage to vote out the member who's sinning. But they hurt a lot of innocent people in the process. That they damage the, the good, good wheat in the middle of the field. You understand what I'm saying? We can't do that. Jesus says you can't do that. But Jesus also says that there are moments in your life, moments in the church's life, where you must confront sin. I refer you, I'm not going to read it now, but I refer you to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18 gives a very, very clear process for how it's done. And I want you to know that at Woodburn Baptist Church, we're going to do our very best to do it the way it ought to be done. Do it the way it ought to be done. And where it begins is privately. Privately. One of my issues with the way a lot of churches exercise discipline is they love to do it publicly. If there's a church member caught in sin, they love to call a great big meeting of the whole church and make a private sin public. And I don't see that as scriptural. And listen to me, God help me, at Woodburn Baptist Church, we're not going to make private sins public. We don't do that. Now in this particular scripture, Paul does say, bring everybody together, call everybody into assembly. Why would he do that here? 
Because the first word in the whole message is everywhere. This is not private sin now. This is public sin. And Paul sees that you have to deal with public sin publicly. And, and God help us, I hope we never have to face a situation like that in our church. We haven't in a long, long time. But I'm, but I'm telling you, we're not going to make private sins public. That's not a part of it. Jesus says, if there's someone in the congregation who's done something offensive to you, you go to them. You go to them. It's a straight line. You go to them. That means you do not come to me first. You don't come to the pastor and say, listen, have you heard what sister so-and-so is doing? I heard that she, every afternoon she's watching The Love of Life. She watches The Love of Life on TV, and I don't like that show. No, no. If sister so-and-so is doing something that you feel like is, is offensive or wrong, you go straight to her. You go straight to the brother. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Are you listening to me? You make a straight line because this is what Jesus says. You make a straight line to the person that you feel like is doing something offensive. You go straight to them. Well, Brother Tim, not everybody's comfortable doing that. I don't care if you're comfortable. This is what Jesus says do. Because listen to me. If you won't talk to that person, then you got to keep your mouth shut. Because if you won't talk to them, but you'll talk about them, that's gossip and that's another sin. You understand? Then we got to deal with you. I'm not kidding. You talk to the person. Always to the person first. If you start talking about the person, you're gossiping. Well, I don't talk to anybody except my wife. I need somebody to talk to. No, you don't. That's gossip, even if you're talking to your wife. You understand? You go to the person If it's not worth it to you to go to the person, then you just forget about it. Because this is the only way Jesus gives us for resolving differences, for confronting people in sin. You go first to the person. You go lovingly and you go privately. You do not get a bunch of people to pray for you. And and, and you understand, that's gossip again. You go. You just go. And you say what's on your heart to the person. It's private, you understand? And you keep it private. If that person won't listen, if that person continues in their sin and is unrepentant, then what do you do next? Scripture says very clearly, you can go bring somebody with you now. You can maybe bring one or two other people. We're not talking about bringing in the deacon body at this point. You don't tell your whole Sunday school class. You don't call the Christian radio station and put it in a form of prayer on the radio. Understand? You get one or two others, mature Christians, who can go with you back to the person, it's still private. Do you understand? Jesus' concern is that at every step, fellowship is sustained and nurtured. You're always trying to protect fellowship. The idea is always to keep this person in the family, to bring this person back to repentance. We're not trying to embarrass and punish people. We're never trying to embarrass or punish people. You don't make private sins public. Now, if that person continues in an unrepentant fashion in their sin, then it may become a total church issue, and that's what Jesus says. But that is the final step way down the road after you've tried everything else with all of your heart. Do you understand? That's the last step in a long process, which for the most part tries to remain very, very private, very, very quiet, and very, very loving. And that's how we try to do it at Woodburn Baptist Church. 
We've practiced church discipline two times this year. You don't know anything about it. You don't need to know anything about it. Did you understand? Because it didn't go that far. When people repent, when people turn, when they come back, then honestly, we stop. We stop. It's not about punishing. It's not about embarrassing. I think the principle that I find in Scripture is that, is that the circle of offense is the circle of confession and repentance. If someone does something wrong in relation to their family, they need to confess and repent before their family. They do not have to come in front of the whole church. If someone does something wrong, understand that that circle of confession and repentance is the circle of offense. You don't start bringing in extra people just because people love that sort of thing. I don't love that sort of thing. In Scripture, there are actually situations where you're said to exercise church discipline. Any instance of public sin. Honestly, if, if any of us, me included, if we sinned in such a way so grossly, so publicly, that it brings shame to the name of Christ and shame to the reputation of Woodburn Baptist Church, we would have to do something. We would have to do something, have to respond, and we would. Public sin is something that would have to be dealt with publicly. At the same time, Scripture makes it clear that there are situations of just grossly immoral sin, the kind of thing that Paul is talking about here, the kind of thing that everybody in the world would say, hey, Christians aren't supposed to do that. We've got to deal with that kind of sin. We simply would have to, and we would do it in exactly the way Scripture says. You don't make private sin public. Scripture also says that you exercise church discipline when people are teaching, teaching anything that's, that's contrary to the clear gospel in the Scriptures. We would have to exercise discipline if someone began to teach in a way that's outside Scripture. Scripture also is very, very clear that if people become divisive, if they begin to try to split or divide the church, you've got to exercise discipline in those matters. You can't let people begin to undermine the unity and integrity of the church. You see, Scripture talks about this. Our Constitution and bylaws in our church, it, it talks about this. Paragraph 3 of the bylaws under termination of membership. It's plain, brothers and sisters, and we've always done this. I just want you to understand why we do this. Our aim is to love each other very, very well. And I do love you with all my heart. If any of us is caught in a sin, if I'm caught in a sin, I pray that y'all would care about that and take that very seriously. If you thought that I was hiding sin in my heart this very moment, I hope you'd be in my face before the day is over, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you care enough? I mean, if I were that close to wrecking my ministry or, or wrecking my family or, or my reputation as a Christian, I would hope you'd be in my face. Why would you want to turn away and not deal with that? I would hope you would respect Scripture and respect me enough to do that privately. I hope you wouldn't tell the whole world before you come and tell me. That's not love. That's not what Scripture says. Wouldn't you come to me? Because I'm promising you. I'd come to you. I'd come to you. Because I know what sin can do. How many of you have ever, ever been diagnosed with cancer? Show your hands. Ever been diagnosed with cancer? What was that like? The minute you go to the doctor and the doctor says, you've got this in your body, what was the first thing you thought? We've got to get it out. We've got to do something because you have this idea of what cancer does. You've seen how it operates. 
It, it, it's sort of in your body quietly and secretly for the longest time, and you don't even know that you have it, but it's continuing to work. And you know that if something isn't done, it could destroy your life. It could completely take away everything important to you. You, you know that. And that is why the moment you realize that you've got that in your body, everything in you begins to focus on beating it. Focus on the fight against cancer. You'll do whatever it takes. You'll pay whatever is necessary. You will forget everything else because your whole life becomes focused on this battle, on this fight, because you know how serious cancer is, and you know what cancer does. What I'm saying is sin in my life, sin in your life is cancer, and sin in the church, it's cancer. It is not something that we can just ignore because it spreads. It's like when Paul in the scripture talks about the leaven, the the yeast in the dough. It's quiet, it's invisible, but it's powerful and it works from the inside and it will destroy. Sin always leads to destruction. It always leads to death. We can't ignore it. But the most important thing for you to hear today is that you've got to not ignore it in your own life, in your own heart. Because this is where sin operates, in our lives, in our hearts as individuals. This is why I say self-discipline is the most important kind of discipline. The sin in your life is what you must root out. It should not become the job of the church to discipline you. You've got to do it for yourself because sin is destructive. Sin is a cancer in your soul. Don't you understand what I'm saying? You cannot flirt with it. You cannot play with it. My cousins and I would file in, turn on the lights, turn on the microphones, and and play church. And we talked a lot about sin in our pretend sermons. And we talked a lot about hell in our pretend sermons. But we turned out the lights, turned off the microphone, and walked out. Because we were playing, you understand? There was nothing happening to actually change our lives, change our hearts. The church is the people called out by God, transformed through Christ. The transforming part is that part where God continues to work in my heart by the Holy Spirit to make me more like Christ, to make me holy as God is holy. And that means every single day, I'm rooting the sin out of my life. My friend, if you're not doing that, if you're not on this, this focused battle against the sin in your life, rooting it out because you know that God has called you to be holy, if this is not the way you're living your life, then I want to suggest to you that it really might be that you are here this morning playing church. This is not a show. It truly is a battle. We are not fighting one another. We're fighting for one another. We're fighting against Sin, brothers and sisters, we must fight against sin. And the fight begins inside your own life. Inside your own life. Pray with me. Oh God, of course we're all sinners. Of course none of us is perfect. 
all of us mess up. Every week, Lord, we mess up. But God, I pray that even though we mess up, we do not stray so far from the path that our life becomes a disgrace, a, 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 a total mess. Oh God, I, I pray for our church. I pray for the integrity and the sanctity of our church. Lord, even though all of us are sinners, Lord, I pray that each and every one of us continues, Lord, to, to do the, the battle within our own hearts, the battle for holiness, the battle, Lord, to, to have the transformation that you're trying to work, Lord, take hold in our lives and our hearts. God, we know what sin can do. We know what sin will do, Lord. We know that we have an enemy who tries to steal, kill, and destroy everything about us, Lord. We are not playing here. Lord, I pray that you would convict church members at Woodburn Baptist Church. I pray that you would convict us of our sin and that we would become so heartbroken for the sin in our own lives, Lord, that we would take whatever measure necessary, Lord, to live a life of holiness, Lord. I pray that we would be self-disciplined, self-controlled, Lord, by your Holy Spirit so that we can always be here to support and encourage and love and restore one another. God, I pray that you would make us a people of such conviction and a people of such compassion that when we stand up in the community and share the gospel, Lord, the world will know, Lord, that we have experienced that which we preach. Lord, we know that untransformed people cannot preach a gospel of transformation. So transform us, Lord. Transform us. Help us, Lord, to be your church. Not perfect today, but on the way, Lord, to the day when we see you face to face and we're presented to you, perfect, holy, without any fault, no blemish, no stain of sin. God, I pray that you would help us this day, this morning, on our faces before you to let you wash us clean, clean, Lord of every stain of sin. Help us, Lord, to love each other, to forgive each other, to restore each other, but to stand with each other, Lord, for holiness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.